So this tonight is really an opportunity for us as a group to reflect on where we are in our development, but also in terms of what we could think of as a spectrum of how this Buddhist teachings, which our insight tradition is rooted in, Buddhism, as many of you know, can be practiced um, in a huge range of different ways. On one end, as what we might think of conventionally as a religion. So we see people, for example, lighting incense and doing prostrations and chanting in foreign languages and all of those things that we might normally think of as being a religion. And then on the other hand, we have the secularized or secularizing practices where those kind of, um, you could say, some people see them as cultural um, aspects of Buddhism have been taken out and uh, where there's a lot more emphasis just on the technique of meditation. So there's a wide range of ways that Buddhism can be practiced to such an extent that um, some scholars now talk about Buddhism's plural rather than Buddhism singular. So tonight, for the first time, we actually have a Buddha figure sitting here, courtesy of Kim, who has lent it to us this evening. But usually, as most of you know, we don't have any of the um, traditional trappings of Buddhism. So this is a first to be sitting in the company of this little Buddha. So I wanted to talk about uh, this topic. Somebody brought up the question, and I thought it really fits well with our theme of integrating the Dharma into daily life, because as I pointed out last time I talked here, even to say, can we integrate the Dharma into daily life, implies in some ways a misunderstanding of the Dharma, because it implies that the Dharma is somehow something separate. But one meaning of this word Dharma is the truth the truth of how things are. So how can it be separate of from biting into a ginger nut cookie or taking a sip of tea or sitting in meditation? All of those are aspects of uh, we can pay attention to them. So the path of practice that we're doing here can be understood as a journey that takes us closer and closer to the truth, the truth that will set us free. So this is um, the truth that sets us free. And there's a quote I really like that's been attributed to Gloria Steinem. Some of you may know. The truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. <laughs> and that was actually my experience as I was preparing this talk. <laughs> because even after all these years of practice, I noticed there was this residual wanting there to be one truth. And the more I explored this, the more I found all these different perspectives, these different opinions, these different views, even amongst uh, teachers and scholars and practitioners who I really uh, have a lot of respect for. So the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. And even well-known names in Buddhist circles, such as Stephen Batchelor and Bhikkhu Bodhi and Akinchino and Gil Fronsdal, they've been debating with each other for years in various journals and on various websites uh, for quite a while now, without, as far as I can see, coming to any agreement. 
And this is where I started to feel irritated because I wanted them to say, okay, you're some of the best and brightest minds. Surely in all of your explorations, all of you will come to some kind of truth. But that doesn't seem to be uh, true. <laughs> so that's one of the paradoxes, I think, actually, that as our practice matures, we become more and more comfortable with multiplicity with the fact that there are perhaps many different perspectives, many different lenses, many different ways that we can relate to this practice and they don't cancel each other out. So we can think of um, this exploration. So what I'm trying to do this evening is just really um, raise questions more than try and find answers. So in some ways, what we're doing here is like a Japanese Zen koan, which, as some of you know, is a kind of a riddle or a paradox that we explore as a practice. So I'm going to give a brief summary of just some of my own recent explorations, uh, starting actually with just the definition of secular because right there, there's a huge range of different understandings. The term secular seems to mean quite different things to different people in different contexts. And often, there's a kind of a hidden assumption in the use of that word that secular is somehow superior to something that's non-secular. And so the German Vipassana teacher and scholar and psychologist uh, Akinchino, who I've um, taught with, he acknowledges the term secular is both charged and diffuse. So it's a loaded word and it's not very precise, which is perhaps why there are so many different um, interpretations about it. But he went on to draw out a list of uh, different ways that the term secular has been used that I found quite helpful to reflect on. He says secular can be used as an antonym, so the opposite of, orthodox, so secular as the opposite of orthodox. In other words, it's liberal, it's tolerant, or even pluralistic. He says secular has been used as meaning not bound by tradition, definitely as not fundamentalist. It's been used quite literally in the sense of of this century. So that's the etymological definition of secular saculum from the Latin of this century. It's been used as non-monastic, not part of a clergy or church. It's been used as not of a unified worldview. It's known as non-metaphysical and decidedly concerned with this world. It's used to mean non-religious and it's used to mean worldly in the sense of the opposite of sacred. So those right there, we could probably have another eight talks on, on any one of those uh, understandings of secular, but I'll just pick a few of them to explore a little bit more in terms of how do these relate to Auckland Insight. So let's start with an easy one. Secular as meaning non-monastic, not part of a clergy or a church. And so pretty obviously, I think, on that count, we're secular. None of us here is wearing robes. None of us here at this point is ordained, although some of us may have been or may will be in the future. But 
at the moment, this is a, a secular um, group. And most of the teachers that we orient to people like Gil Fransdell and Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, they too are all lay teachers. But I think it's worth pointing out that those, uh, you could think of them as our founding teachers, they all practiced with monastics. They went to Asia and they studied and spent long periods of time on retreat with people like Saido Upandita or Ajahn Chah in Thailand, um, Munindraji in India, although he actually was a lay person, but he was an Anagarika, which means he was, uh, he had given up the householder life. He was a celibate, uh, so kind of quasi-monastic. So this first generation of insight teachers, they had a strong relationship with monastics. That's where they learned the practice from. And I think it's worth um, highlighting a point that several scholars have made, that actually without the ordained sangha who have maintained this tradition pretty much unbroken for close to 2,600 years, there wouldn't be anything for secular Buddhism to define itself against. So there is this uh, lineage that uh, we have benefited from. And part of my minor irritation at times is this sense of disowning or disrespecting or diminishing the value of the very tradition that has made any of us sitting here today has made it possible for us. So that's one thing I'd like us to keep in mind, which is not to deny that the monastic um, tradition, like any human thing, has its shadow side. There are definitely issues with it, certainly around things like patriarchy and that kind of thing. Not to deny that, but to also acknowledge that... Um, the monastic culture has been such a powerful protector and um, guardian, in a way, of the teachings. And I think also um, it's easy in some ways to judge uh, a culture or a tradition from the outside if we haven't had direct experience of it. And I think that's one of the challenges on this side of the world is that most people haven't had much contact with monastics. Many people haven't done even lay long-term intensive retreats. So it's easy to look at the external form or to read about it and to make assumptions about what it's about without actually having the direct experience. So just to highlight that as a possible thing to bring awareness to. So this tendency is um, particularly ironic if we look at some of Akinchana's other definitions of secular as an antonym or opposite to orthodox. In other words, liberal and tolerant and pluralistic. So it seems to be human nature that on the one hand, we we do seem to get caught in dualities. We frame our world in terms of black and white and good and bad and uh, right and wrong. And yet, on the other hand, we also seem to crave singularity so that just this is true, everything else is false. You know, so we have this, in a way, relatively simplistic um, way of relating to the world, searching for this is right, and then also identifying with it. 
so I want to find the one right thing and then I'll be right by implication and don't want to be wrong. So as I was saying earlier, the sign of a mature practitioner, I think, is somebody who is able to hold those um, potential contradictions and also to not identify with this is the one true way and I I know what that is. So my own teachers, Joseph and Gil, have been pretty amazing role models in that regard. You know, both of them really have this expansiveness and capacity to hold a whole range of different approaches to Dharma. And Joseph speaks really movingly of his own teacher, Munindraji, who I just mentioned, how when Joseph was uh, first studying with him, he would study intensively with Monindraji, and then he'd go off to learn about Dzogchen in the Tibetan tradition, or he'd go and sit a Goenka retreat. And every time he told Monindra that he was planning to do this, Monindra's response was apparently, great, go and see what you learn and tell me, which is quite different from the way some other teachers and students might relate to each other or the way some other traditions even hold themselves, like this is it. You know, and some suspicion or outright hostility to other ways of practicing the Dharma. So in that sense, I would like to think that Auckland Insight is secular in the sense of um, being liberal and open to multiple uh, interpretations, liberal and tolerant, while still being clear that our core approach emerges from this Western Insight tradition, so-called. I still find it a little strange that we call it a tradition when it's about 50 years old. <laughs> it seems a little presumptuous, but, you know, um, that's the common way of referring to it. And perhaps uh, that meaning of the word secular as of this century applies here. And it is... Um, Secular is often taken to mean relevant to this time, this now, to be contemporary, perhaps even to be cutting edge. And in that, there's a valuing of or privileging of here and now, and then a sort of diminishing of the past, of history, of tradition. Um, we want to be at the cutting edge of new new developments, so we refer to things like neuroscience to kind of legitimize or validate our teachings. Um, and this tendency to privilege our own times is not really in alignment with the Buddha's teachings. You know, if you've read many of the suttas, one of the things that he points out is really the vast sweep of history and the endless arisings of civilizations and fallings of civilizations. We know that, you know, the Roman Empire and Genghis Khan and, um, you know, constantly coming and going and yet we all somehow like to believe that here and now is the pinnacle of human development so i like to just uh, foreshadow i know you're going to be listening to gill's talk so just to mention briefly a couple of points he made in relation to that that we tend to think that the secularizing of the dharma is this new modern development that we took it from Asia where it was all historical and traditional and we Westerners or we modern people made it um, of this century and relevant to here and now. 
But actually, he points out that Upandita and, to a lesser extent, Mahasi Sayadaw were already um, in a more secular relationship to the Dharma. They weren't so much talking about the supernatural aspects of it or the belief in rebirth. They were very much about learning to understand the mind by sitting down and observing it. And the cosmology and the, some of the more esoteric aspects of the suttas really were not very emphasized by Mahasi and certainly by Upandita. And Ajahn Chah also was very earthy and um, grounded in the immediacy of experience. So those teachers were already on a spectrum that was more, I think, towards the secular end, even though they were monastics, which is interesting. The second point Gill makes in relation to secular is that, again, I think we tend to think of secular as being something that we um, contemporary people do. But he points out that in the history of religions generally over thousands of years, there are many cycles of movement towards and away from the secular. It's not a phenomena just of our time. It actually comes out of conditions. So in eras when there is more wealth, there's more middle class people, you could say, people have more leisure, who are more educated, there tends to be a movement towards secularity. So we're not unique in this. And I think it's helpful not to think of ourselves as we've, um, what am I trying to say, just this sort of in some ways over-privileging of, oh yes, secular is new and modern and it's our contribution to the development of the Dharma. On the other hand, I think this is also pointing to one of the core strengths of the teachings is just how adaptable they are. So those of you who are familiar with the development of the Dharma from the lifetime of the Buddha in northern India, you might know that it spread in waves, one wave went down south into Sri Lanka and then across to Burma and Thailand, Cambodia, Laos and so on. That became known as Theravada or the way of the elders. And it took on the flavor of the cultures of the countries that it came into contact with. Same also when the second wave went up into Tibet, it merged with the Bon religion, and so there were more ritualistic and, you could say, animistic and spirit infusions in Tibetan um, meditation. Likewise, when it came down through China into Japan and encountered the samurai culture, we get Zen Buddhism. So Zen and Tibetan and Theravada are all coming from the same root, but they have quite different um, manifestations or expressions or cultural styles. And we can see the same process happening as it comes into contact with the West. And so the influence of Western psychology, science, neuroscience um, uh, is also, you, and also you could say capitalism, is also impacting the way the Dharma is uh, being expressed here in our time. So secular also can be... Uh, seen as non-religious and this downplaying of what we might think of of the more religious aspects it can um, I think for many people who have come from perhaps uh, Judeo-Christian heritage or tradition and had perhaps 
for some people, including myself, a less than satisfactory experience in uh, some of those religious traditions. They might come to this tradition looking to get rid of anything that has any trappings of, in terms of belief or faith or um, hierarchy, you could say. And so there can be a pushing away of those things. And that was certainly true for me, um, brought up Anglican Christian. And for whatever reason, the way that tradition was expressed in the churches that I had to go to didn't find much meaning for me personally. So I just dismissed all organized religion as irrelevant. And when I first started to try and um, get over that and came into contact with Buddhism, actually here in Auckland in a slightly different tradition, when I saw people bowing as they came into the shrine room, I mean, it was horrifying it was a shrine room at all, but that people were bowing as they crossed the threshold was really disturbing for me. And I would wait until I thought no one was looking, and then I'd kind of go like that, and then I'd walk in. And then after a while, I thought, you know, that's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> if you're going to do it, do it. Or don't, but, you know, this is kind of, it's neither, you know, it's like a twitch. So I decided not to do it because I had a perception of peer pressure, which actually wasn't true. It was my projection. And so I thought it's better to not do it than to do it half-heartedly. Then I went to Thailand. Thailand's a Buddhist country, and there bowing is just so natural and second nature and because it's not just a buddhist thing it's a more broader cultural thing it would have felt rude in some situations to not bow it would have been like a statement of superiority or something or cultural arrogance and so i decided that i would consciously try to bow and also seeing some of the people on retreat with me who were able to bow so fully and so wholeheartedly, then I understood what it was about. So the first time I bowed and um, my forehead, it was a full prostration, my forehead touched the floor, I was amazed by two things. One, that I wasn't struck by a bolt of lightning, <laughs> which was an unexpected kind of superstition that I didn't even know was there, you know, because I felt like I totally rejected my heritage, my Christian heritage. Still, there was a little bit of... And the second was just this sense of, oh, this for me is just about acknowledging there is something bigger than my small self, my little individual view of the world. And that, for me, was what it became about. So generally, in these kind of circumstances, I don't bow out of respect for, you know, the multiplicity of views and relationships to this religious aspect of Buddhism that may be in the room. If I'm on retreat, I might bow. Um, and when I'm doing my own practice on retreat, I do do prostrations every time I come into the hall and leave the hall. And for me, it's also a practical thing that it's a mindfulness practice. It's amazing how much information you get when you sit down to meditate and you go to bow and you realize you're literally wonky, you're off balance, and you realize, wow, I'm way more scattered than I realized. Okay, so I need to be more present. So the bowing for me has a practical function of helping me to really arrive in the room, to arrive in my body, to 
get a quick snapshot of the state of my body, heart and mind. So it has a practical aspect also. But in situations like this, I don't bow. But what you do see me doing is this, which is known as Anjali. And it's a little different from the Christian prayer in that I was told, at least in Thailand, there's space between your palms because this symbolizes a lotus bud. And the idea is that it's symbolizing the potential for awakening. So when you're doing this, you're just sort of acknowledging our own and everybody else's potential to awaken and be free. And that's become just what I do a little unconsciously, I have to say. Um, but to me, it is a gesture of respect that's not as full on as a full bow, but is in a similar terrain. So I also at times will end a meditation by inviting the benefits of the practice to be shared beyond just we ourselves, a contribution to all beings, to the freedom, the welfare, the happiness and the freedom of all beings. And again, to some people that may sound like a prayer, might sound kind of religious. But for me, this is all an exploration of how far do we move along the spectrum because if we take away all of the underlying um, orientation and philosophy it doesn't actually leave all that much and I've been noticing in some of the different settings that I teach around the world in the ones where there tends to be more secularization in the sense of less connection with the um teachings even with some of the teachers there it feels like um, there's a pragmatism that actually shifts into the banal <laughs> and I'll explain that but it almost feels like an analogy I've shared with some people is it's it's almost like if you go to a travel agent say you're and you say oh I'd really like to go on holiday somewhere where do you recommend and they say Oh, you can, you can go to Hamilton. Hamilton's a great town. You go, oh, okay. I was wondering about maybe going overseas, like flying somewhere. And they say, what? Are you crazy? <laughs> Why would you want to fly overseas? You can go to Hamilton. It's wonderful. There's buses go every half an hour. Just, you know, just tell me what bus you want to go on and I'll sort out the ticket for you. And it almost feels metaphorically like that's happening with the Dharma that as the second, third, fourth generation of teachers come who haven't had the same depth of experience, there's a kind of a shrinking of the understanding of what's even possible and even sometimes a denial of what's possible. So this, I think, is a potential trap if things move too far into disconnecting from the roots and the tradition so there's a, a English psychologist and Zen teacher, I think he's Zen, uh, David Brazier, who's written about this tendency. And I'd like to read you the quote. It's quite long, but I think it captures some of what I'm trying to say more elo eloquently than I can in my own words. And for me, at least, it shone a light on some of my own blindness in practice. He's talking about how we've 
in the West, we've tended to take the technology of meditation and try to make that the whole of the teachings. So he says, for many Western Buddhists, a technical approach that says, in effect, you don't need to believe anything, just do the practice, is very appealing. We are, after all, a culture very much driven by technology. Yet this technical emphasis directed towards Buddhism is something new. Traditionally, in the Asian cultures in which the Dharma has flourished, Buddhism is more a matter of attitude than a set of techniques. Attitude is about the holding of an entire context, and the main attitudes through which Buddhists have always expressed their connection to the Dharma are devotion and faith. The idea that one can, quote, just do the practice is itself based on faith, yet it is easy to miss this sleight of hand. This view of practice does not avoid faith. It simply plays into a faith that we already have, that is, faith in a technological approach to life. It assumes that meditation, like penicillin or Windows 10, works the same in any context. That's a lot to assume. This self-focused technological model of Buddhist practice is not without its virtues. It has made Buddhism widely approachable in a new cultural setting. It has highlighted the richness of its meditative traditions. But a decontextualized Dharma can put the spotlight on the private subject in a manner that's quite in line with our alienated, isolated, choice-making individual that's the primary model of the person in capitalist society. Is this really what we want? It also makes Buddhism into a set of commodities that can be purchased and reduces practitioners to economic units. This is dharma that reinforces rather than challenges many of the tendencies in Western societies that are anything but emancipatory or freeing. It is not, to use the words of the Buddha in the Pali Suttas, going against the stream of our conditioning at all. It is actually quite consistent with some of the deep currents that shape our modern alienated consciousness. Lack of a coherent and meaningful community life and way of relating to others is arguably the cause of much of the suffering that people seek to resolve in Buddhism. If what they get is a do-it-yourself, on-yourself, by-yourself, for-yourself, at-a-price technique, this is not going to do the trick, even if it does provide some secondary gains or palliative satisfactions. Ultimately, Buddhism flourishes through an other-centered rather than a self-centered orientation towards life. So there's quite a lot in that quote. Um, we again could spend probably another six talks unpacking it, but I really just wanted to lay out um, a few aspects of this terrain and leave time for to hear from any of you, anything that struck you, anything that was challenging or um, anything at all about how you see Auckland Insight on this spectrum of um, classical Buddhist on one hand, um, modernized, secularizing on the other. Okay, thank you for your attention. <laughs>